All right. We're so glad you're in worship today. I hope you are having a good day and feeling great about this new year. You know, it was just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, a woman that I did not know, I don't believe I had ever met her, approached me in the supermarket. Uh, and she knew me from church, seemed to be really excited and glad to see me, and I was glad to see her, even though I'd never met her before. And, and so we had a little conversation right there in the supermarket aisle, and she shared a number of things and just was very grateful for the church. But toward the end of the conversation, she began to kind of go into something that's happening in local politics where a local government leader had been indicted on fraud. And so she was just kind of sharing her uh, frustration with that and so on. And, and, uh, and she said she had to go. And so as she quickly kind of hurried on, just before she sped off, she said, well, Pastor Rex, it's like the Bible says, money is the root of all evil. Now, I wanted to say to her as she was quickly going away, no, it's not. Ma'am, please, please read your Bible again. Now, let's look at what the Bible actually does say about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at what The word of God says, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It's a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, did you catch the difference? It's not money, but the love of money. That's not a trivial difference there. It's important that we make that distinction because according to the Bible, money is kind of neutral. It's kind of like fire. Fire can warm you up and make you feel nice and comfortable and cozy, or it can burn you up and destroy you. It all depends on how it's used. And money is much the same way. And I will assure you that many people, greedy for money, eager for money, have pierced themselves with many, many griefs. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells a classic parable about an owner who went away and he entrusted his estate to three of his servants. To one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. Now, scholars sometimes discuss how much a talent was worth. I looked this week in Nave's topical Bible, which has all kinds of information, and it suggested that uh, a talent was worth about 20 years' wages. So in other words, uh, these guys were being really entrusted with a lot. Other scholars suggest that it was much more modest amount. But all of that discussion really misses the point, doesn't it? Because the point of the parable is not how much a talent was worth, but the point is that the owner expected a wise investment. 
And so as the story goes on, after a long time, the master returned and settled accounts with those servants. The one who'd received five, the the one who'd received two, had doubled their trust by investing wisely and, and stewarding it well, and they were greatly commended by the master. Well done. But the one who'd received the one talent, he was intimidated, he was afraid, he even admitted that. And he went away and just dug in the ground and just kind of stockpiled or hoarded, did nothing with uh, what he had been given. And the parable is very clear that this owner, this master was not pleased at all. He said, you wicked, lazy servant. The least you could have done is put it in the bank so at least it would have drawn a little bit of interest. And he said, it's going to be taken away from you. And you'll be cast out and no longer considered a part of this household. Now, from that familiar parable today, I, I want us to consider three principles about earning money honestly and in investing it wisely. And, and I'm convinced that this message is incredibly relevant. Here's why. Because I know a lot of Christians who kind of get caught up in this greedy drive for more and more things, and it is hampering their spiritual progress. On the flip side, on the flip side, I know lots of believers who feel guilty because they have any desire for material things or any drive to make a profit, and they feel guilty about that all their life, or they get really critical of others who have more. So I'm convinced that a good exploration of this text can really help us get a balanced view of how the Lord thinks about earning money honestly and investing it wisely. So let's just jump in, and I invite you to take some notes here, and let's, let's learn together. The first principle I would ask you to consider is this. God is the one to whom we're all ultimately accountable. Now, if there was ever a no-brainer, surely that's it. I mean, you don't get that just from this parable. You get that all over the Bible, that we are accountable to our creator. Jesus said here in Matthew 25, verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. So God has entrusted possessions to every one of us. We talked about that a little bit last week. We're the servant, he's the owner. And even if you live at a poverty level in America, If you live a normal lifespan, by the time you die at the poverty level, and it never changes, you will have had over a half a million dollars pass through your hands. And the question is, how did you steward that? If you make just 50, if you just average $50,000 a year, that's all, just for a normal lifespan, and you retire at the age of 65, guess what? You have had well over two and a quarter million dollars pass through your hands. The question's the same. How did you steward that? The amount varies, and the ability to manage it varies, but the principle is the same. God is going to keep us 
accountable. Now, while some of you are gifted with finances, some of you may consider yourself gifted at spending finances. Amen? Yeah, I actually see a few hands going up. That's, that's awesome. Good for you. I've actually met some Christians who said, Jesus said, don't hoard up on earth. And man, I'm obeying that command. I'm spending it, baby. You know, he said, don't hoard it up. I'm afraid he's going to come back and catch me with some, you know? So I just try to let it pass through my hands as quickly as possible. And some of you kind of have the Midas touch when it comes to finances. Everything you touch, everything you get involved in seems to turn to gold. It seems to turn out well. Joseph, the son of Jacob in the Old Testament, was that way. When Pharaoh put him in charge of the government conservation and assistance program, within a decade, Egypt was the wealthiest nation in the world at that time. King Solomon was much the same. He was what you might call a (coughs) five-talent investor. He made the government of Israel rich during his lifetime through various decisions and moves and alliances that he made. In fact, when the queen of Sheba came to visit, she herself was wealthy. But when she saw all the opulence of King Solomon, she said the half has not been told about this man's wealth. But let's be honest, there are some people who have wealth but have never been trained to manage it. During this series, as I mentioned last week, I'm urging you, if you will, just to pick up a copy of this little book. Some of you might be into e-books as I am. You might want to get it on your iPad or on your electronic device. That's great. Uh, you, You can pick this up out in the lobby if you don't have a copy. Listen, there's so many great things in here. One of the fabulous quotes in here on page 60 is from Tony Dungy. All you football fans may recognize his name, Super Bowl winning coach, a man I greatly admire and respect, a wonderful Christian and and leader, does a great job now as a commentator on pro football. Listen to what he says. The earning power you are at as a professional athlete is unrealistic. To be 21 years old and start at the top and make half a million dollars and think it's always going to be that way. Mm. That's what so many of our guys, and he's speaking as a football insider about football players. That's what so many of our guys have problems with. Now they're 30, and they come back to a job where they're making 50000 a year, and they're disappointed. They think, how can I possibly live like this? And yet, they're still living better than 90% of the people in the country. But they're not used to it because they had this unrealistic start. And it's true, isn't it? Uh, Some people may have a lot kind of coming through their hands, but, but they have no real idea of how to manage that well. But on the other hand, I know a number of people who have relatively little but boy, can they stretch it. They know how to squeeze money and really make it go far. There was a circus entertainer who advertised himself as the strongest man in the world, and he had a very entertaining show. But at the end of it, he developed this little routine 
where this big burly guy would take an orange and he'd just squeeze it and squeeze it until every drop of juice was out. And then he would challenge. This was his climactic closing of his act. He would challenge anybody, any man or woman in the audience to come up and squeeze another drop out of that orange. And no one was ever able to do it, although many tried. But one day he was in upstate New York in a little town and he gave that challenge and a man said, I'll try. A man walked up, took that orange and squeezed it and a big old drop of juice came out on a paper towel. The entertainer said, I've never seen anybody do this before. Who are you? The man said, my name is Bill Minchin. I'm the pastor of business administration at Grace Fellowship Church. Bill's one of those guys who knows how to take things and make it go far. And that's a marvelous gift. I hope some of you have that gift. But this parable teaches that one day God's going to require an accounting of all of us. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. And I'm sure it gets your attention like it does mine that one day each of us will give an account to God. Now, now you may wonder, well, pastor, when, when that happens, and, and that's one of those common teachings all throughout Scripture, what, what is that going to be like? What is God actually going to evaluate? Well, I, I think Ephesians 4.28 is a great verse, and I think it gives us, in that little verse, Ephesians 4.28, four things that God is looking at. The first one is our motivation. God is going to be checking and evaluating and and judging and keeping us accountable for our motivation. Now let's look at what this verse actually says. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Must work, that's a very interesting word in Greek. It means exert energy. It, It often carries the idea of tremendous effort must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. God is looking first at our motivation. Were we doing it for selfish reasons, ulterior motives, or were we simply trying to provide for our family and to fund the kingdom of God and help people who are hurting and and so on and so forth? That's an important question. The second thing God is looking at is our usefulness. The question here is, is the thing that we're doing, is it really useful to society? Because some things are actually harmful, or maybe they harm not only the economy, but the environment. There's some jobs where you can make money that they're just immoral. An extreme example would be something like stealing or prostitution or any number of things. God wants to know, is what we're doing, is it contributing in a positive, redemptive way to the society? Third, God is going to evaluate our effort. He said, those who steal should steal no longer, but should work. Now, one of the greatest benefits of genuine, honest work is that it tends to create character. One of the problems with the get-rich-quick schemes in our world is that when you're doing that, you're usually trying to avoid work. 
The main point is I don't want to work. I want to do something where I don't have to work, where I can get rich quick. And so compulsive gamblers compulsively play the lottery or the horses. Thieves steal. Gold diggers marry wealthy people for their money. There are all kinds of schemes to get rich. Proverbs 28 reads, he who works his land will have abundant food, but the one who chases fantasies will have his fill of poverty. A faithful man will be richly blessed, but one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. And the fourth criterion that God is looking at as he keeps us accountable, judges us, evaluates how we've done is integrity. Integrity. He who's been stealing must steal no more. There are all kinds of people who try to cheat the government or cheat their employer or cheat their employee. God says we're to be people who walk the talk, people of integrity. Larry Burkett passed away a number of years ago, but he was a very effective financial guru in the U.S. for many years. He counseled with a man who was in management at a a dairy that advertised uh, all-natural yogurt. That's what they were known for. It's all-natural. It's all-pure. There's no additives, no preservatives or anything. But this man knew good and well they were adding preservatives to it. And uh, he didn't know what to do. He was asked to sign a document, though, saying that it was 100% pure. And so he went to Larry Burkett for counsel. He was a Christian. Larry Burkett said to him, well, you need to either confront your boss or you need to get another job. And so he mustered up his courage. He went and confronted his boss, but it did not go well, and he was dismissed. But 16 months later... He wrote Burkett a letter, excited, saying that he had a different job that was actually paying more, and in the letter, he included a newspaper clip of how that very dairy had been investigated, and the owner had gone to prison. The plant manager and the quality control inspector had received heavy fines. You see, this Christian man had made the right choice, and it had paid off in the long run, But it was still the right choice, even if it hadn't turned out so beautifully for him. Someone said, if you have to do wrong to stay on the team, you're on the wrong team. If you have to do wrong to stay on the team, you're on the wrong team. Few things, friends, will test your character like the opportunity to make money. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians 4, it's required that those who've been given a trust must prove faithful. The second principle I would ask you to consider today in our study is that appropriate ambition is actually, get this part now, I think this is a shocker to some Christians, it's actually expected by God. Appropriate ambition is expected by God. Verse 16. The man who'd received the five talents went at once, put his money to work, and gained five more. So also the one with two talents gained two more. 
These men wanted to increase their trust. That was natural. That was a healthy drive. God was pleased with that. That was expected. And I think God has placed within just about every one of us a desire to improve, an instinct to excel. Some years ago, when Bob Hayes, the sprinter, uh, ran the 100-yard dash in 9.2 seconds, he was immediately interviewed after, out of breath, everything, and the interviewer asked him how he felt, and he immediately said, I can run it in nine flat. That showed his ambition. He had just broken the world record, but he had a drive to do better. Myron, the classic Greek sculptor was reportedly once asked which of the great sculptures was his greatest and he responded my next one that's ambition ambition is good if it helps us to maximize our potential it takes each tree striving for a place in the sun to make them all grow That's why Paul wrote in Philippians 3, brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. That's an athletic term straight out of the Greek Olympic world. I press on. I'm running with every ounce of energy. I'm running with focus, muscles taunt. Eyes ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul had appropriate ambition. He didn't say, I've had a couple of missionary journeys. Now, yeah, God's done some really cool things. You know what? I think I'm going to kick back and coast from here on. Didn't say it. No, he always had his eyes on the road ahead. Appropriate ambition says, God, what are you up to? What do you want me to get in on with you? And so he said, I want to take the gospel to Rome. I want to take the gospel to Spain if possible. I want to squeeze every ounce of life out of this. That kind of ambition, friends, is really good. But uncontrolled ambition, according to the Bible, can be devastating. We need to understand that. It regularly warns us about our ambition to get rich and what that can mean. It says, be careful. Jesus made statements like, provocative statements, like it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. The disciples said, who then can be saved, Lord? And Jesus said, well, with men, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. That's why I love Proverbs 23, verse 4. I think it gives a good, realistic balance. It says, do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. You know what I think that means? Don't make money the consuming passion of your life. Don't do it. Don't live as a workaholic. Keep your ambition under control. But there's nothing wrong with ambition. It's appropriate. In fact, I I think this parable is teaching that God actually expects appropriate ambition. Well, there's one final principle today I want you to consider, and that is that all profit earned honestly and handled wisely is pleasing 
to God. It's pretty clear in the parable, isn't it? When the master returns, the two who had doubled the investment made a profit. The master was very pleased. And when he confronted the one who'd buried in the ground, he said, at least you could have put it in the bank so it would have earned a little bit of interest. I believe we need a little reality check sometimes in America. I hear profit, honest profit, talked about almost as a dirty word today. Corporations are, are really the big culprits, according to many people in our culture. They make all this money, and, and just that's bad. We need a reality check here. Our whole economy, our whole uh, nation was built on the idea of just earning an honest profit. Socialism has proven a disaster in the former Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc countries, so-called. Some people look at the Bible and read the book of Acts and go, but weren't they practicing that in the early church? No, not socialism, not communism. They, They still had capitalism, but here's the difference. They voluntarily shared. That's a big difference. They made a profit They had personal goods, but they voluntarily shared with those who were in need. But I know some believers who are sort of beginning to suggest that any profit beyond bare necessities is somehow evil. Jesus earned a profit as a carpenter growing up. He earned uh, money as a carpenter to help his mom, to help his brothers and sisters. He was the oldest in the family, and he was certainly a provider, particularly after his father passed away. When Zacchaeus, a wealthy man that met Jesus, said, I'll give half of all my goods to the poor, Jesus did not say to Zacchaeus, hey, buddy, that's not enough. How dare you still have more than so many others? No, you got to give it all. He said, no, today salvation has come to this house. Money is not evil, and it's not wrong to make a profit if the profit is earned honestly and handled wisely. But in my experience over many years now in the body of Christ, what I've observed is that Christians who are blessed financially and who tend to have a little more often are unfairly critiqued because people don't know the whole story. So let me spin a scenario here for these final minutes together. Let's say that I invent a new grass seed. Can you imagine that? I I do my research. I do my development. I've got a little lab in my basement. I've been working. You know, you didn't know that, did you? Let's say I develop a new grass seed, and it's amazing. It's like a miracle. It grows three and a half to four inches high, and it stops growing. <laughs> Woo! You don't even need a lawnmower, baby. You don't need to do any trimming, anything. It's unbelievable. It grows three and a half to four inches. That's it. Stops growing, stays clean, stays green. It is unbelievable. And uh, I can make it for $10 a bushel. So I decide to sell it for $100 a bushel. Now, all you need is a couple of bushel to seed your lawn. 
And so you buy in. You spend a couple of hundred dollars. You buy a couple of bushel of my seed. And you seed your lawn. And it is you don't even need your lawnmower. You don't need your lawn service, anything. It is incredible. Now, some of you might say, well, pastor, I think you need to sell it for, you know, $20 a bushel. Well, but you're not taking into consideration all the years of research, the brilliant mind behind it, the cost of continued service, and eventually the law of supply and demand just kind of takes over. But now, go with me here. Let's go on with this illustration. Let's say that this new grass invention does really, really well. And the first year, I have, after all my expenses, taxes, everything else, I've got $100,000 just clear. I'm just getting started. And I've got 100000 additional dollars. What should I do with that money? Well, I could give it away. That would be noble. I could give it all away because it's, it's over and above my job. It's over and above what I need to live. I could give it all away. Or I could just blow it on myself. That would be indulgent, of course. Pretty selfish. Or I could invest it all back in the company. That would be a very frugal way to go. But you know what I think I would do? I think I would choose a combination of those. I believe that I would give 25000 to the church, back to the Lord, right off the top. I think I would put 25000 away as an investment in grandchildren's education one day. I'd invest 25000 uh, back in the company, and then I would take 25000 and buy a boat, all right? Now, if I did that, and by the way, I hope you'd all know this is all hypothetical. I have no lab in my basement or anything like that, okay? I have no 100000 to spend, Okay. If, that, if I did that, all most of you would see is the boat. You'd go, oh, what a selfish guy. How indulgent. But let's say that the company continues to be fabulously effective. In fact, some years it, it just doubles and it's just exploding with growth. And in four or five years, I've got a million dollars extra that I've got to do something with. How should I spend that money? Well, about this time, if I'm a growing Christian, I'm probably going to rethink the percentages and the strategy. About this time, I'm going to say, well, you know, I, I, I don't feel comfortable putting another 250000 away for myself. That seems a, a bit selfish. Uh, I've got so much more than I could ever use. I, I, I don't feel comfortable going out blowing 250000 a fourth, to take the percentages that I used at first. Uh, just on toys and things like that, things that I want, a bigger, better boat. I think I'm going to give away 450000 this year to the Lord's work. I think I may take 450000 of it and reinvest in the company. And I may take 100000 take my family on a big trip to Hawaii, put a little pool in our backyard and buy a Mercedes. You know, if I did that, all most people would see is the boat, the pool, the Mercedes, and the trip to Hawaii. Now, please stay with me here. Don't lose the point. Be careful that you don't judge the stewardship of anybody else. 
Only God knows the total picture. That's why Romans 14, 12 says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Is it possible for a person to have a million-dollar home, two really nice cars, a condo in Florida, take a trip to Europe, and still be a good steward of the money God has given? It is possible. But boy, is it rare. Boy, is it rare. It's very difficult. It takes a very special Christian to do that. But don't judge somebody else because, frankly, you just don't know what's going on behind the scenes. And I would say a word to those of you who do make quite a bit of money. You know what? I think God's given you a special trust when you're blessed that way. But I believe he's expecting a lot from you. And as the prosperity and the blessings go up, I think the percentage of self-indulgence, the percentage ought to come down. And I think the percentage of generosity ought to go up. And if you don't prayerfully determine that, you're going to be very tempted, very tempted. When you're just fabulously blessed by God, you're going to be very tempted just to fall into the trap, most people do, of bigger barns, fancier boats, more elaborate vacations, and you'll probably experience tremendous guilt. Would you look at me what the Bible says to those who are wealthy, to those who are rich in 1 Timothy chapter 6? Command those who are rich in this present world to sell it all and give it away. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what happened there. I just read that wrong. I'm sorry. Let me try. Command those who are rich, it embarrasses me when I do things like that. Please forgive me. I hate to mess up. Command those who are rich in this present world to be ashamed because how dare they have more than anybody else. I am so sorry today, folks. I don't usually do this if you're our guest. I usually can read it pretty well. I, what... Command those who are rich, he's talking to Christians now, in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us, whoa, with everything for our enjoyment? Just as a, parent might give a bike to a child and they want to see the child enjoy the bike this says god actually gives us some things he wants us to actually enjoy it as we're being wise stewards of it all let's see what else it says as you go on command them to do good to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share in this way when they live that way not arrogant, not trusting in wealth, which is so, uh, being generous, willing to share what God has blessed them with. In this way, when they live in this way, they will lay up for themselves treasure in heaven as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Is wealth worth it? Yes, if it's earned honestly, And if success is seen 
as the byproduct of a fruitful life lived in service to God. I close with this story. Ron Blue tells of a preacher, 80 years old, who'd been a pastor for many, many decades, and he went to his a financial counselor, he went to Ron Blue, to ask him if he could help him as he prepared for retirement. He's going to retire at the age of 80. And he wondered if he had enough money saved up. Now, this preacher, the largest salary he had ever received was $8,000 in these little country churches he had pastored. That's the most he'd ever made in a year. Now, keep in mind that 85% of the American people have less than $1,000 saved by the time they retire. And so Ron Blue asked him, do you have any debt? And the preacher said, well, no, we don't have any debt. Uh, We never could afford to pay the interest, so we never went into debt for anything. And Ron said, well, that's, that's good. That's a good start. He said, do you have any savings? And this retiring pastor said, well, I have $250,000 in, in CDs and um, in uh, cash and in mutual funds. And then I have $350,000 in other low-risk investments. $600,000 in cash accumulated by a man who had never made over $8,000 in a given year. Ron Blue was astounded. He said, what was your strategy? And this simple country preacher said, well, here's all we did. We just gave 10% to the Lord, and then we took 10%, and we, we tried to learn about investments, and we invested it in things. Nothing too risky, but we just put it to work and never touched it. And then we prayed and asked God to help us to stretch that other 80%, and we asked him to do miraculous things with it. And boy, I tell you, sometimes it seems like he really did. And he ended up with over $600,000 by the time he was 80 years of age. Some of you may think that's not possible, but if you crunch the numbers, you'll find out real quick, it is very possible due to one thing, the miracle of compound interest. I call it the eighth wonder of the world, okay? But can I tell you something as we close today? Compound interest in reverse is awful when you're the one paying it. And we're gonna talk about that a little bit in the coming messages in this series. So Ron Blue told this pastor, I don't think I can help you. (laughs) I... I think you got this down. I think you're setting. You know what I believe? If that pastor and his wife allocate those funds in a will very wisely and appropriately when they die, I think when they stand before God, God is going to say to those dear people, well done, good and faithful servant. Let me ask it again. Is wealth worth it? The answer is a resounding yes, if it's earned honestly, if it's invested wisely, and if success is seen simply as the byproduct of a fruitful life lived in service to God. Father, thank you for the power of this parable and for how revolutionary your word is when it comes to finances. It's such a big part of our lives Nobody could ever act like it's not. We face it every day, almost every moment of every day. We're somehow impacted by this question of wealth. Is it worth it? 
Help us to be amazing stewards of all the things you've provided. And may we hear at that very end, at that great day, when we see you face to face, may we hear, well done, good and faithful servant. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.